This morning, I want to speak from the teaching topic, the enduring truth, the enduring truth. In Titus chapter one, verses one through four. Titus is in the New Testament, if you're looking for it. And Titus is right after the book of 2 Timothy. Again, Titus chapter one, verses one through four. I'm gonna talk about the enduring truth. Time is only gonna allow us to go through verses one through four. So let's get started. I'm gonna first start off by reading the scriptures together. After we read, we're going to pray. And then after we pray, we're going to dive into the word. This is the letter of Paul to Titus. This is what Paul says. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our savior. Verse four to Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we thank you for this moment. May the prayers of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, I ask that you allow your word to fall on fertile ground. Allow us to be effectual doers of your word and not simply hearers that delude themselves. For it is in the doing of the word that we are blessed. Strengthen us now by your grace. Hide me behind your cross. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A.W. Tozer in his book, Man, the Dwelling Place of God, in chapter 37 entitled, The Importance of Sound Doctrine, Tozer states these profound words, and I quote, each generation of Christians must look to its beliefs. While truth itself is unchanging, the minds of men are porous vessels out of which truth can leak and into which error may seep to dilute the truth they contain. The human heart is heretical by nature and runs to error as naturally as a garden to weeds. All a man, a church, or a denomination needs to guarantee deterioration of doctrine is to take everything for granted and to do nothing. The unattended garden will soon be overrun with weeds. The heart that fails to cultivate truth and root out error will shortly be a theological wilderness. The church or denomination that grows careless on the highway of truth will before long find itself astray, bogged down in some mud flat from which there is no escape. A.W. Tozer expresses in his book the necessity for sound doctrine and teaching for the Christian. 
He mentions that truth, if it is unattended and unguarded, it will cause the church to move into error and eventually becomes what he says, and I quote, a theological wilderness. My prayer for us this morning, church, is that we'll understand four things. And that is this, that truth in the hearts of every believer must closely be cultivated. It must be carefully examined. It must be courageously taught and lived with conviction. You see, if we fall short of rooting out error and false teaching, we are going to eventually make room for the watering down of the gospel. Paul's letter to Titus is going to address a few things, and I want to outline them here for us. The first thing is that there is a network of home churches that are in a particular city that Paul and Titus are reaching. And this particular city that Paul is ministering the gospel to is a city that is full of secularism and full of sin. This city is called Crete. These existing home churches have believers within their home churches that are beginning to experience an uprising of false teachers in those churches. False doctrine as it is creeping in, Paul is commissioning Titus to do something particular. And what he is commissioning Titus to do is to put in order what remained. To put in order what remained. And Paul will express this to young Titus in Titus chapter 1 verse 5. This is what he states. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. You see, we have to understand that those who are bringing in this false teaching and false doctrine were professing to be Christians, but yet their lives were not actually living out what it was that the gospel said it should. Paul mentions further in the text in chapter one, verse six, he says this, they profess to know God, but their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Paul's letter to Titus is going to be quite similar in nature to that of the letter of Timothy in 1 Timothy. It's dealing with oversight and leadership in regards to false teaching in the church. You see, there is a dire need in these churches in Crete to have established overseers and organization within these churches. And Paul's apostolic appeal to Titus will bring about a deep concern that Paul has for these churches, but most importantly, church, the gospel message. So Paul is addressing at the beginning of this letter, a greeting of sorts. And this is unique to this letter. And, and I want to explain why, because in this particular book, there are 46 Greek words that are occurring before the address to Titus is even made. The reason why this is important for us to understand that there are 46 Greek letters is because it's talking about strong Christian doctrine that is in the meat of the greeting that is necessary for the hearer to understand. 
However, before we jump into that, I want to explore with you this morning something a little further, and I want to give us some historical and geographical context. Although we do not know who delivered this letter to young Titus in Crete, we are able to approximate the date in which it was written, and that is in and around AD 64 to AD 66. And interestingly um, enough, Paul's letter to Titus was written in and around the same time that 1 Timothy was written. You see, in 1 Timothy, the emphasis would be on the leaders in the church, whereas Paul's letter to Titus is emphasizing organization in the church. It could be seen that the churches that Timothy was over at this particular time were a more established church versus that of Crete. Now, understanding this particular piece will bring us into this next matter of Paul's urgency as to why he is so fixated on making sure that Titus sets in order what needs to have been remained. Check this out. Crete was considered one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea and was well known for its notorious Cretan culture. Now, to give you an example of how notorious these Cretans truly were, one of the words in Greek for being a liar is kretizo. It literally means to be a Cretan. So the people who lived in Crete were absolutely known for treachery. They were known for violence. They were known for sexual corruption and a love for money. Many men on this island were mercenaries that were sold to the highest bidder. Men would go to other men's wives to have sex with them and think nothing about it. I mean, this was complete anarchy at its best with no moral compass guiding them. If you wanted to know what Crete was like, that was Crete. Absolutely filled with sin. And this is the place where Paul is wanting young Titus to remain, to set this church in order. And when you think about it, church, the world that we live in is not too far removed from this first century context in Crete. In Titus chapter one, verses 12 through 13, to go a little bit deeper, Paul quotes a man by the name of Epimenides, This is one of Crete's own prophets that makes this profound statement. Check it out. Epimenides states this. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. One could imagine that these believers in Crete were faced with many challenges. Think about it. These Cretans in this church, they've given their lives to Christ. Christ has made himself known by the Holy Spirit. And now they are to live a life that is to the glory of God amongst a culture of people that are beginning to suppress what it is that they know, which is the truth. These Christians have pledged their allegiance to the Lord and have moved from sin and to their Savior. And I think one takeaway that we can look at this this morning is that there is always a desperate need for sound churches in unchurched places. Crete is the ideal place to place a church that teaches sound doctrine. But friends, Paul would be remiss if he missed also the message of mercy in the gospel 
You see, a part of knowing sound doctrine is also knowing how you and I came into this glorious salvation. Don't forget that God's mercy also met you. It also met me, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Um, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we've done, but because of, check it out, here it is, his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth of the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, so far we understand, friends, that the state of these churches were in grave danger. And they were in need to be set in order. Disorder had been brought into the church by these false teachers who professed to be believers, but yet their lives did not reflect the inward change that the Holy Spirit brings by the transformation of the word of God. Titus is being charged to establish elders and overseers in these churches so that the truth would be made known and that the false teachers would be weeded out. Lastly, a question that you might be asking yourself as we're going through the overview of this text is, why Titus? Why would Paul send this young Titus to be established and to set in order the chaos in this place? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. What experience or background does he have? Here it is. Titus's background was that he was a Greek Christian amongst a largely Jewish group. And Titus's time with Paul was very much indicative of the ministry that he would take on. It, it, it's apparent that Paul picked the right man for the job. Titus's time with Paul was reflective of the ministry that he would take on at Crete. There's a quote from Pastor Brian Loritz that says this, if you want to know the ministry that God is calling you to, take an inventory of your pain. So Titus was not foreign to false teachers. He, he's journeyed with Paul for some time. He's seen false teachers come up. He's heard about this anti-gospel. And with him alongside Paul, Titus is seeing this. He's witnessing this himself. Therefore, Paul is discipling him and preparing him for what he must know and what he must do to take false teaching head on. So we have some historical background. We have some geographical context as to what is going on. Now it's time to dive into the text. We're going to do some Bible Olympics, which means we're going to be flipping through the scripture. So if you have your Bible ready, let's, let's do this. Um, Titus chapter one, verse one, it says this, Paul, a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Paul begins this, this similar framework of a traditional Pauline greeting. But what I want us to really focus on is that how he has introduced himself. He, he does not start with his role in the church. He starts with his position in Christ. He mentions that he is a bondservant of God. A bondservant. The Greek word for bondservant is dolos, which means slave. He then establishes, after making that known, he establishes his apostolic authority. 
by saying, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul could have addressed this letter in any way, shape, or form for a multitude of reasons. But friends, I want to tell you why he possibly had stated it in this way. Judaizers had crept into these churches attempting to give this illusion that salvation comes by following the Mosaic law. That you becoming circumcised makes you saved. This is what is being taught in these churches. Paul has addressed this issue at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, as well as Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 regarding these false teachers. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. It's pretty lengthy, but follow me. It says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and check it out, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Check it out. Here's the big piece. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false teachers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth, check it out, the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I believe the reason why Paul begins with his position in Christ versus his spiritual role is because Paul wanted the reader and the hearer to understand that Christ is the head. Not Paul, not other men or, or, or other religions or, or, or traditions of the Jewish type, but no, it is in fact that Christ and Christ alone is the one in whom all men and women are called to himself. You see, these false teachers were placing emphasis on position regarding Jewishness within a pharisaical context. However, the gospel emphasizes the fact that deeds don't make you righteous. It is God, God alone, who makes you and makes me righteous. First Timothy chapter six, verses three through five, it says this. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, check it out. He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a sick craving for controversial questions and disputes about words from which come envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of depraved mind and deprived, check it out, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is somehow a means of gain. These false teachers were looking for shameful gain in their own right, rather than seeking the glory of Christ and what he did. These false teachers, friends, were pharisaical at heart. All talk and no action. And Paul describes them a little bit more accurately here in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. He says it this way, for there are many rebellious men 
empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. He continues in verse one by stating for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. Check it out, which accords, which accords to godliness. Paul is making one thing extremely clear. Being chosen by God is possessional, not positional. I'm going to say that again. It is a matter of God who is possessing us, calling us, choosing us, not us wanting to do what we want to do to get to him. Salvation is based upon Christ's work and not our own. It's not a matter of tradition, but it's a matter of revelation by the spirit of God because God's personal election. Nor friends, is it a matter of Jewishness, but it is a matter of God's sovereign choosing. You see, God chose a people for himself and the children of Israel out of all the nations. And if you were to read any of the Old Testament, you would clearly see that it was not because the children of Israel were perfect people. Clearly, it was simply because of the fact that God chose them. I I like what R.C. Sproul states. He says this, God chooses whomever he chooses for reasons that are wholly his. There's nothing that you or I can do that qualifies us to be able to be qualifiable to be called by God. In other words, legalism and tradition says I have to work my way to get to God. I have to work my way to be this good person. But this is what the gospel says, friends. The gospel says God came to us and gave us his ability so that we may be able to be the good work that he's called us to do. Paul, in his first verse, if you haven't seen it already, he is calling out these false teachers. I mean, he's calling them out straight like it's nothing. And I can imagine these false teachers just sitting in the congregation as they are hearing these words being spoken from Titus in front of the entire home church network. And they're cringing because they are being called out because the gospel is being proclaimed amongst what it is that they're trying to perpetuate in the church. We can't forget the second half of this verse where Paul says, which accords with godliness. Paul lets us know it is the truth of the word of God that transforms us and the spirit of God that conforms us into the image of Christ. This process is being sanctified. This this sanctification process comes from us being taught soundly and being trained soundly. See if I can give you and I an example. Um, My wife and I, we have two kids, a five-year-old and a four-year-old. And if you know anything about five-year-olds and four-year-olds and getting their rooms clean, it don't happen, okay? And, and, and so my wife and I, we told our kids, hey, it's time to go get your room clean. We're going to give you 20 minutes. We've shown you how to get your room clean before. You got 20 minutes. It starts now. Boom. 20 minutes later, we go into the room, and guess what? The same craziness in that room was still existing at that moment. 
And so my wife, out of frustration, she, she takes the Facebook in her, her group chat and she says, y'all, I don't know what to do. These kids did not clean their room and I'm frustrated. I'm infuriated right now. And one of our friends commented on the thread and, and they said this, check it out. Teach and train what you want to see. Training and modeling is the strategy with a lot of encouraging words along the way. And here's the kicker. Training does not take after you've said it once or twice, especially with five-year-olds. It's an ongoing thing. Here's what Paul is saying. The knowledge of the truth of God's word is accompanied by rightful living and constant teaching and training, which brings glory to God. Constant teaching and training, constant teaching and training. Check it out. First Timothy chapter four, verses six through eight. It says this in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Check it out. Constantly nourishing on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following but have nothing to do with the worldly fables fit only for old women on the other hand discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness verse 8 for bodily discipline is only of little profit but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise check it out for the present as well as for the life the life that is to come. You see, when we have truly been transformed by the truth of his word, it moves us to live well to the glory of God. Training our bodies in the truth of God's word is not just a Sunday thing. I come on Sunday or I come on Wednesday. I got my word. Pastor Steve preached that thing. I'm gone and I don't do anything else. That, that's not training, that's not equipping, that's just an activity. You want to see your life transformed? It has to be an ongoing, constant thing. My question to us family and family online is this, what does your time look like with Jesus? Daily, what, what, what does it look like? Is it maybe three hours? Maybe six? A week? How, how, how is the truth of the gospel producing in you transformation in every single area of your life? Paul continues on in verse two. He says this, and I love it. In the hope, in the hope, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Paul makes mention that it is the knowledge of the gospel through the work of Jesus Christ, that we have something to live for now and to look forward to with a promise. This hope of eternal life is foundational and it's fundamental to the faith and the hope of every single believer. This is not an empty hope that we talk about. This isn't a hope that has some temporary satisfaction of a portion of our lives. This hope satisfies all that we are and it produces something in us that bears fruit for others to see what has happened internally. In other words, 
When we realize what has been done for us, it moves us to godly action. Titus chapter 2 verses 13 through 14 says this, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds. Friends, that they... There should be within you and I this yearning, this desire, this longing to live for the glory of God in all that we do. Not just one area of my life, but in every other area of my life, I want the glory of God to be shown in the way in which I live. We don't live as if we don't have any hope, but we live well in trying times in the nasty here and now because we have hope of the coming king that is coming back for his bride. July of last year, I buried my mother. 30 days later, I bury my uncle. Two days ago, I get word that my grandfather passed away in hospice. And I'm racking in my mind, what in the world is going on? Why is all of this happening? And as I'm thinking about all of this, I text my aunts to check on them. I have six aunts and I check them and to see how they're doing. And one of my aunts responds in a text message and she tells me this, check it out. She says, Papa is in a much better place. And we, capital K, capital N, capital O, capital W, we know, we know that we will see him again. Friends, that this is the hope that we have, that that, that we're not going to mourn the loss simply because he's no longer here with us. We know where he's going to be, and he's going to be in glory with the Father. And because our hope is promised by the Father, I also too know, my aunt also too know, my family also too knows that we will then be with him once we are out of this crazy place. See, we're confident in this hope because God promised it. Because God promised it. He cannot lie. See, why is it so important for us to understand that? Because this entire faith, this entire gospel that we proclaim day in and day out hinges on that truth. And that is this. Either God is telling the truth and his promises are true. Or God is a liar. It's either one or the other. Is he trustworthy or is he not? And Paul is creating this contrast in the text between God's trustworthiness and humanity's lawlessness and unworthiness and wickedness. More specifically in this context, the Cretans. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 through 10. If you want to know how wicked we truly are, this is what the text tells us. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And in a culture of relative truth or perceived truth, 
or my truth, we must recognize first what is the absolute truth. As followers of Jesus, we recognize that the absolute truth is based upon this book. The scriptures are the absolute truth. They are the period. Christ is the period, not the comma. God cannot lie. If God were to be a liar, he would cease to be God. Friends, you have to understand God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 says this. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold. Check it out. Of the hope set before us. What is that hope? The hope of eternal life. That he is coming back for his bride. That is something to give him glory. That is something to give him honor for. Why? Because friends, it's with a promise. Truth is hinged upon Christ alone and nothing else. And the reason why it is so important to know this is because it is important to know how you and I should be able to spot out the lie. We must identify truth, not by our own biases, not by our perspectives, not by our traditions, not by what we think, based upon God's holy word and what was done on the cross. Not only was this hope promised long ago, but Paul lets us know that God prepared it. I love this at the right time. Check out verse three. He says, but at the proper time, hallelujah, manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our savior. Paul mentions that the eternal hope Jesus Christ was promised long ages ago and he came at the proper time. This, this phrase proper time in the Greek is kairos. It's not to be confused with chronos, which comes from our root English word chronology or, or a chronological order. This particular thing means appointed time or a designated time. So if I could put it to you a different way, uh, um, it, it, it is a particular point in time that is related to other points in time with a focus that this particular time is designated by an authority. To put it plainly, God's revelation of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was on God's timing to bring about his good and perfect will in human history. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 26 says this. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, verse 26, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, check this out, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul makes it known that the gospel that was preached at Crete when he and Titus were first there, that is the true gospel. 
that this gospel is the revealed gospel. It is, friends, the enduring truth. And because our hope is in Christ, who is the very word of God, we not only have a fixed promise of eternal life, but there is also, check it out, a demand for obedience in our lives. What we know and what we believe about God through the proclaiming of the gospel is directly linked to our behavior and how we live. There is no one and done or you get this part, but you won't get this part. No, if you truly heard the gospel, the gospel met you in your mess and in your muck and in the mire and it hits you and the spirit turns you on. There's something that's going to be different. I don't talk the same. I don't act the same. I don't hang around with the people that I used to that used to hold me back. But now something's been done so much so in my life that I now live completely different. And check this out. It's recognized by other people. It's recognized by other people. Now understand, please, please understand, this does not mean that you are going to be perfect. In this life, it ain't happening. But when our groom opens up the heavens and he comes back for his bride, oh, what a glorious day when you and I will be transformed and we will be made perfect, not because we did anything, but because he did everything. And because he did everything, now we can do what he has called us to do. What does this mean? What this means for us is that we are transformed by his very presence. As Pastor Steve often mentions to us, when you preach the Bible, When you preach the Bible, good things are going to happen without cause. This happens because God himself is moving upon the hearts and the minds of those in whom he chooses and in whom he wills for his glory and for his glory alone. You see, Paul's emphasis on preaching implies that there is an ongoing proclamation It's not a matter of one and done. You heard the message and you walk away. No, that this is a consistent message that should be proclaimed, not just from the pulpit in your hearing, but it should be amplified in your life. Friends, if I were to put it a different way, you are the walking pulpit because you've been entrusted by God as believers to be living testimonies of the word of God that has been transforming your heart and is transforming your heart. Being entrusted with this truth also is going to presuppose that not only has it been believed, but there's evidence in your life. Paul's going to wrap up this point as he goes into verse four. He says these words to Titus, my true son in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul makes mention that Titus is his true son in a common faith. Paul typically is using this word in order to bring about an understanding of genuine connection. That, that, that you and I, were on the same page, 
right? That, that, that yeah, you understand and I understand, we good, we, we got it, right? That, that's what Paul is saying in regards to true connection. And, and, and the true connection that is here for Paul and Titus is what he says, the common faith. Or in other words, the apostles' teaching. Check it out. Second uh, Peter chapter one, verse one, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here it is. What is the common faith? It's what Paul talked about in first Corinthians chapter 15, verses one through four. Let's read it real fast. It's right here. Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I have handed down to you as of first importance what I also received. Check it out. That Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the common faith. That anything that goes against that is a lie. Anything that does not go to what the word of God says, that Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised. If anybody preaches anything other than that, you might want to stay away. You might want to close your ears. Or better yet, as Paul would say, you might want to go up to him and let them know you got this wrong. That's exactly what Paul did to Peter. When Peter was sitting at the table... And he was sitting with his Gentile friends who had just come into the faith. And some Jews began to walk by. And Peter saw the Jews and he saw them eating and he was loving his ham and cheese sandwich. And then all of a sudden he says, listen, Paul, Peter, don't act different just because you're seeing your Jewish friends walk by. The same faith that saved them is the same faith that saves you. Don't act different. It's our same Common faith. Titus, he said, is a true child. And the reason why Titus is a true child is because he held firmly to sound doctrine. A scholar by the name of Philip Hughes in his book, Paul's Second Epistle to the Corinthians, states that Andreas Christensis, Titus's successor in Creek, in Crete, says these words in Titus's eulogy. Check this out. The first foundation stone of the Cretan church, the pillar of the truth, the stay of the faith, the never silent trumpet of the evangelical message, the exalted echo of Paul's own voice. Friends, I... I don't know about you, but from what history and the scriptures are showing us here is that what Paul commissioned Titus to do, he did it well. He didn't move. He saw adultery happening around him. He saw people lying about the gospel around him. He saw turbulent times around him, but Titus didn't give in. Titus stood strong. And he preached the enduring truth. My question for us is this. Are you serving 
to the glory of God well, so much so that when people see your life, that they are looking for this anticipated return of Christ? Are you compromising your beliefs to be liked? Or are you standing flat-footed, unashamed for what it is you believe? Does your life reflect Christ in every area, even when you are hard-pressed on every side? The gospel, friends, when it's taught soundly, when it's entrusted to faithful men and women, well and lived with conviction and to the glory of God, this is what the promise, transformation will happen. It's not a might, not a maybe, it will happen. That's why I thank God for this church. That's why I thank God for our elders and our pastors and our leaders here, our small group leaders here. Because they, they too have been entrusted with this common faith. And they take it seriously. Sophie Smith and her husband in children's ministry take it seriously. Today we would have been baptizing over four kids in children's ministry. Why? Because the gospel is working. Not because we're making it work, but because God is making it work. He promised it. He said he was going to do it. He's going to do it. We were scheduled to baptize over 21 people today. Pandemic is, is, is running rampant and people are getting sick. But guess what? The gospel still goes forth. It doesn't change, friends. If the pandemic either takes us out or not, guess what? The gospel still goes forth. I want to share a testimony with you on this enduring truth from one of our online listeners who's followed the ministry for some time. She says this, my husband and I were both furloughed from our jobs for a very long time in 2020. I came across Pastor Steve in the podcast in November, which led me to verse by verse ministry. I have struggled with constant worry throughout my life, especially this year. And it was God's word through your ministry that I've learned how to rest in the Lord and what a joy it has been. I have never fully understood what that meant until now. And there are no words to describe the peace that follows and the joy and the gratitude and this new and salitable desire to learn how to be obedient servant of a beautiful, loving God. Amen. Friends, if we were to project your life on a screen right now to see all of the things that you have experienced in life either prior to your salvation or even in you being saved what would we see and the question that I have for us is would you be giving God glory in it in your suffering in your trial why because as Christ suffered to the cross he promised that you and I too would be suffering so guess what? I, if I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer knowing that I'm enduring with the truth that is promised for me that when I leave this life, glory be to God that he's coming back for me and I will be with him in his presence. And friends, I want to warn you and I want to warn me, don't get comfortable 
because you go to a Bible-based, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, expository church. Don't get comfortable with that. Every day, you should be seeking and how I will grow in the scriptures. My prayer life, how am I growing with my time with the Lord? My epinosis, my experiential knowledge with God that every day that I walk with him, he's taking me from one level of glory to the next level of glory to the next level of glory. Why? Because he is mine and I am his. This is the gospel that we preach. And lastly, I want to leave you with this. The same way that Paul ended his salutation and greeting to Titus, I end with you with this. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how excellent and how marvelous is your name. Lord, that you would take broken, jacked up people like us, choose us in the muck and the mire, clean us up, put your righteousness upon us and say, now live to the glory of the Father. God, we are thankful for that. We are thankful for that. As your word says in the book of Psalm, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your great name for your love and kindness and your truth. May we call on you as long as we have breath in our bodies. May we lean on you as long as we have breath in our bodies. Lord, we know that the grass withers. We know that the flower fades. The word of the Lord stands forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.